God has to say to us now. So if you want God to speak to you, why don't you bow your heads and join me in prayer. Well, Father, we have so much to praise you for, so much to excite our affections and delight as we consider all your goodness. And Father, we thank you that your words speak searchingly to our hearts that are often fractured and frazzled by sin, that the Lord Jesus uh, knows what we are like. Father, often we hold different facts and different parts of our brain and they don't impinge together. And so, Lord, would you give us whole hearts, integrate our thinking and our feelings uh, so that our will may be motivated by your glory and your grace. So speak to each one of us now, we ask, in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, I want to apologize for those who are not remotely interested in athletics. I was told last week that some of you aren't, but this week has been a fascinating week for those who like athletics. It saw this incredible uh, matchup between Usain Bolt, someone who's never uh, been found to be testing positive for drug-enhancing things, and uh, Justin, um, what's his name, Justin Gatlin, who's actually been suspended for two drug violations. And they were competing against each other in the 100 and 200 meters, actually in the 100 meter relay as well. Now, Usain Bolt beat, beat them on, on both occasions, much to the delight of Steve Cram, the BBC presenter, uh, who just shouted at the telly, uh, from the telly with great excitement that justice had been one and the, the sport had been saved and, uh, and, uh, and, and everyone who loves the sports probably were thinking, yes, phew. In fact, Gatlin's coach has complained about the BBC coverage, just saying that sort of it, it made it too personal, it painted too, too, too starkly the, the, the forces of good and evil relating to poor Mr. Gatlin and Mr. Bolt. But what do you think? Do you think someone who's been banned for using... Uh, drugs that enhance their performance, do you think they should be allowed to compete again? And um, let's say you say, well, yeah, I think they should. I think they should serve their time and they should be allowed to compete again. Well, what, what if they, uh, they cheat again? Do you think that they should have another go? Should they be given another opportunity, a second opportunity? Uh, and if you say yes, well what, well, well, what about a third opportunity? What do you say to that? Now, that's probably a bit impersonal to us today, and so we can just sort of make our pronouncement what we think, because none of us are probably directly impacted uh, in terms of our income doesn't come from athletics or sports, and so we can just say, well, yes. But let's bring it, bring it home uh, a little bit more personally. If someone has, you know, has hurt you, by their sinful actions. How have you responded to somebody sinning against you and hurting you? Uh, we know that we are supposed to forgive people. Uh, if we're Christians, we know that, don't we? We know we're supposed to forgive people. Perhaps we even told them, look, yeah, we forgive you. But did we really forgive them? If you've never read this book by Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker, I would highly recommend it. It's called The Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. It is just a fantastic book. And in it, uh, Ken talks about one pastoral conversation that he had. And uh, this, is, this is what it says. Let me 
glasses here. I just can't forgive Pam's adultery, Rick said. She says she's sorry, and she's begged for forgiveness, but I can't forget what she did. It's like a huge wall between us, and I can't get through it. So you think divorce is the answer, I asked? I don't know what else to do. I told her that I forgive her, but I just can't be close to her again. She's depressed and has withdrawn even further from me. I'm afraid she's going to look for intimacy <clears throat> with someone else again. We're both in agony, and it seems like we'd get better getting divorced. But what would you say to Rick if Rick shared that with you? The issue of forgiveness is massive, isn't it? What, what does God have to say about it? Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and, and you'll find that in a church Bible on page 985. Page 985, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now just pause that for a moment. Forgiving up to seven times. What do you think about that? That sounds pretty generous, don't you think? Can you imagine it? Uh, after someone sinned against you two or three times, your patience would start wearing a bit thin, wouldn't it? In Jewish rabbinic writings, you only really were uh, told to forgive three times. And after that, you were under no obligation. And so... Uh, seven times is generous. I think Peter started to understand something of the heart of Jesus. So can you imagine the shock? Verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times. Phew, he's thinking. But 77 times. 77 times. Well, here's another characteristic that Jesus expects of his, of his citizens, of his kingdom. In chapter 18, uh, th this chapter begins with one of the disciples asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus um, surprisingly says there is a scale, there is a measure of greatness, and he, and he spells out what that measure is. And it turns out in the first um, 14 verses, it's about those who walk humbly. Humility is the mark of greatness in his kingdom. And then in verses 15 to 20, it's those who act justly as he talks about what to do when someone sins against you and the right response of dealing with that conflict. And in these verses, it turns out, he wants us to see that the greatest in the kingdom are those who also love mercy. See, to be willing to, to forgive 77 times is not really an encouragement to uh, have a really big black moleskin and count them off. That's the 75th time. Two more. And you've had it. No, it's not encouraging that, isn't it? I mean, when he's saying 77 times, what's he saying? He's saying that, the, that actually the, the, the Christian, his default heart response should be forgiveness. I guess after 30 or 40 times, it, it's getting part of what you do. That's what Jesus is saying. But how on earth are you supposed to live up to that? Really? 
How on earth are you supposed to be able to keep forgiving and forgiving in that way? Really, how do you do that? How can you have a heart that is inclined to forgive? Well, let's read on. Because Jesus, the master storyteller, wants to tell us something very important. Let's read from verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him. He began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, it's a story from the business section of the newspaper, isn't it? It's, it's regarding the finances of a head of state, a king. And it's about two servants whose debts are called in, but who can't repay their debt. That, 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 those are the similarities. But there's two massive contrasts here, aren't there? Firstly, the size of the debt. The first servant owed 10,000 talents. The second servant owed 100 denarii. Well, even before you know what a talent is and a denarii, one sounds worse than the other, doesn't it? But it, it gets worse when you discover what those things are. It's hard to get exact comparisons with today, but a denarii was basically a day's wage for an unskilled worker. Work one day, get a denarii. And so the second servant, he owed about 100 days of pay. A talent. Well, do you know how much a talent was worth? A talent was worth 6,000 denarii. Equivalent to 16 years of work. And so the first servant owed 438 years of paid work. You get the comparison? 100 days of work, 438 years of work. The first servant owed an absolute colossal debt. And so when the king heard about this, uh, 
the man, he has him brought to him. It doesn't sound like he came willingly, does it? And uh, he orders that the servant be sold into slavery, uh, thrown into debtor's prison, along with his wife and his children. There's no more credit. In fact, it's, 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 it's the day of reckoning. And not that this would pay back his money, but he had to show that it, 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 was, it was wrong to fool around with someone else's money. And so he and his wife and his children and everything they had was sold and he's thrown into prison. And at this news of what's going to happen, that this servant falls down in front of him. He prostrates himself on the floor, the text says in the original language. And he kept pleading with his master, be patient with me, be patient with me, I'll pay it all back, I'll pay it all back. Well, of course, that's a nonsense. He could never pay it all back. But he's desperate. You'll say anything. But there's no chance he can pay this back. And he just keeps pleading with the master. And then a great miracle happens. The king was so deeply moved by the plight of this servant that he did two amazing things. Firstly, he releases the man. He says, well, we're not going to throw you into prison. We're not going to throw your children into prison or your wife into, ch- into prison. Now that's mercy, isn't it? That's amazing mercy. You know, and the king could have said, look, we're not going to throw you to prison. I'm going to get, I'm going to, you go off and try and work hard and we'll you know, set up a payment plan. That would have been remarkable enough, but it's more than mercy. It's incredible grace. He says, and by the way, I'll cancel the debt. You don't owe me any more. I mean, what amazing generosity. What incredible grace. This vast sum, 438 years of work canceled in a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like to to be forgiven that amount? I mean, I I couldn't even imagine going to my bank manager and he says, Paul, that 20-year loan for your house, uh, it's canceled. And here are your legal papers, you own the house. Can you imagine that? They're never going to do that to you. They're never going to do that. Let alone the multi-millions that this man owed. Absolutely extraordinary. What a remarkable miracle. What state of mind would you be in as you walked out of the palace? (gasps) Wow. And then he sees a fellow servant. And this guy owes him a trifling amount of money, a small amount, a few thousand. And he thinks, right, he owes me. And he grabs him by the throat. What a violent man. I don't know whether you have grabbed someone by the throat. It's a wrong thing to do. A violent thing to do. Grabs him by the throat. You've got to pay me back. And the guy does the same. as He, just, he had just done moments earlier. He falls before him. He prostrates himself. And he says, have, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. There's a chance he could pay him back. And, and, and how did this man respond? Well, the king had great compassion on him. This servant shows no mercy whatsoever. He refuses to be patient. Instead, he arranges for this man to be thrown into the debtor's prison until the debt was repaid. What a powerful story. And seeing this, the, uh, the other servants of the king, they understandably are upset. They tell the king all about it. And so the king asks for a return audience. Verse 32 you wicked servants. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. 
Now, what's the point of the story? Well, there it is in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. So here here is a, a story that's for each one of us today. Each one of us. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. This is a a parable, this is a story to motivate us to be people who forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. And so let's consider how this story does that. We're going to forgive people from the heart when instead of grasping the neck of the person who's offended us, we grasp the greatness of God's amazing grace. The Bible is clear that every time we break one of God's commandments, we deserve judgment, punishment, eternal separation. He's a holy God. And when we, as his people, just break one command, that's what we deserve. And you know what is amazing? It it is that actually we've broken many of his commands. He says, do not lie. And yet we've lied. Honor your father and mother, and yet we've dishonored at times our mother and father. Uh, do not make other images. Do not worship anything else. And yet we've often worshipped and, and given our lives devotion to things other than God. We, we've worshipped power and money and pleasure. And the amazing thing is that God in his kindness hasn't ended our lives. He has graciously continued to sustain our life. In a sense, we are stewards of God's amazing gifts of life, talents, abilities, health and strength, even if it's limited at times. It's amazing what we have. The resources that we have. And what have we done with these resources? Well, we've actually, uh, we've not honored him. We've not worshipped him as God. We've not been thankful. But we've used them to break his commands, to, to, to rebel against him. And God has graciously allowed our lives to keep going. And yet we keep flouting it. it this is amazing generosity, generosity from God. But you know, there is a day of reckoning coming. There's a day when God's going to call us in and say, give me an account for all that I've entrusted you with in your life. And my friends, on that day, on that day, no one has a leg to stand on. I read this last week that Donald Trump Uh, The Republican candidate who is shocking everybody by doing quite well, uh, saying he is yet to find a reason to ask for God's forgiveness. Well, I tell you this, if if he seriously meant that, he hasn't got a clue about biblical Christianity. He has no self reflection. He'd be a pretty scary guy to to work for. And if he ran America, that'd be pretty terrifying, I think. If he's never thought he's had anything to ask God to forgive him for, the truth is we, we have so much that we need to ask God's forgiveness for. We, we have nothing to recommend ourselves before this holy God. And you know what? On that day, what could you do but for beg, begging for mercy? And what's incredible here is, is the Bible says, if we, before that day of reckoning come to recognize the seriousness of our sin. And if, if before that day, on that day it'll be too late, my friends, 
But before that day, if we, if we will publicly recognize the seriousness of our sin, the colossal nature of our debt before him, and fall on our faces before him and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Here is the incredible thing that God, who, who made this world, who made us, he is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this gracious God loves the world that he has made. He takes pity on those who humbly recognize their debt of sin. And he freely and he graciously forgives. What an amazing God. The debt is canceled. And we can go free, no longer facing the threat of judgment. But of course, there was a cost to the king in the story, wasn't there, for forgiving that debt. He'd lost all that money. It was no longer his. He had to write it off. The multi-millions would not be repaid. How can God show such amazing grace and generosity to us? How can he cancel our debt? Well, the Lord Jesus, who's telling this story as God come in human flesh, was heading to an agonizing death on a cross. He would be tortured by the Romans as he was crucified. But also, he would be bearing the penalty for the sins of all who would turn to God and seek forgiveness. He came as a sacrifice uh, to put himself in the place of indebted sinners so that we could be released and forgiven. There was a cost that had to be borne, and God bore it himself in his Son. Amazing grace. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should send his only son to save a wretch and to make a wretch his treasure. Amazing grace. And so actually, this is what will help us to really be someone who can forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. Not not what we grasp them by the throat, but that we grasp God's amazing grace and his kindness. This is his, who he is. Secondly, what do you think of the actions of the forgiven servant towards his fellow servants who owed him a small debt? What was your reaction as as we read the story? Were you shocked? Were you thinking, this is wrong? This is totally wrong. Forgiven a debt so massive, forgiven a debt he could never repay, and he finds a man who owes him a tiny amount, and he starts choking him? And despite this man's cries for mercy, when he'd received mercy, to not offer that mercy, what would you say to that? It stinks, doesn't it? It's a disgrace. He has dissed grace, hasn't he? It is an utter disgrace. And I think we all know that the right response to having received such grace is to show mercy to others. Verse 33, it's the question of the king. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Of course. Of course he should have shown mercy. But it's as if this man had forgotten the amazing grace that had been shown to him. And it's only been moments. He'd sort of compartmentalized uh, it away in a different part of his brain. And as soon as he sees this man, there's a different part of his brain going, Oh, you owe me. And you're not going to get away with it. And I want to say, as Christians, we can so easily compartmentalize our brains in this way. 
Blokes, we, can, we are more prone to this than women, I reckon. Uh, and so we can sing songs about amazing grace in church and then see someone after church and think, oh, I'll just find a little way to make them know that I really don't like them. Maybe we'll snub them. Maybe we'll be cold towards them. Maybe we say a little comment that's a bit jabbing that will hurt them a little bit. How bizarre is that, isn't it? God's amazing grace, singing out, we're enjoying it, and then after tea break, we're looking at someone and thinking, And we need to freshly remember the amazing grace of God who's forgiven us a vast debt of sin. And he's released us. It is, of course, the gospel that motivates us to be merciful, that, 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 that makes us have hearts that truly forgive. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you see that? The powerful motive for forgiveness? Just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is what motivates this forgiveness. It's the gospel. Now that should be enough really to, to motivate us to forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. But we should also be warned to recall the sternness of God's judgment. Verse 34 in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. The king's anger is understandable, isn't it? This man had received such extraordinary grace. All the debt had been forgiven, and people who received such grace should, should act in accordance with that grace that they received. He should have shown mercy to his fellow servant, and so everything is reversed. This man is thrown into prison to be punished until he can pay all that he owed. No debt reduction. Uh, no reduced terms would be acceptable. He would receive what he deserved. And that was only justice. Now God might indeed be more merciful than this king. But this servant deserved what he got. And any unforgiving person, by the fact that he refuses to forgive, is inviting God to withhold forgiveness from him. If we go through our life uh, not willing to forgive other people, my friends, that is a very scary place to be. Because we're inviting God to be the same towards us. And so this is such a powerful story, isn't it? It urges on those who are believers in the Lord Jesus to take forgiving others as a very serious business. Do you get the point? It's not just, oh, this is, the, you know, the, this is a nice thing to do. It's a helpful thing to do. This is a serious matter of discipleship. And remember what Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He says, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Forgiven people are to be forgiving people in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so forgiveness should be the lifestyle of the Christian because uh, we're someone who, instead of grasping their neck, has grasped God's grace, uh, has grasped the right response to, to uh, grace is mercy. 
and who recall the sternness of God's justice. So forgiving from the heart, what does that actually mean? I want to be very practical here. What does it mean to forgive from the heart? And I think there are two powerful images in this story that will help us think about it. Forgiveness means to cancel the debt and to set them free. That's what the king does. He cancels the debt and he sets the person free. Debt is a, is a form of slavery, isn't it? It's a, a form of obligation. And forgiveness sets the other person free. They are no longer in debt to you. You'll never hold it against them. Do you remember uh, Rick and Pam at the start of the sermon? Uh, this is uh, Ken chatting to Rick. I could see the weariness in his face. I'm sure both of you are in terrible pain, Rick, but I don't think divorce is going to end it. You'll just trade one kind of pain for another. There is a way to keep your marriage together and to truly put the past behind you, but you won't find it with the empty forgiveness you've offered Pam. What do you mean, empty forgiveness? Rick, Imagine that you had just confessed a serious sin to God and for the first time in your life he spoke to you audibly. I forgive you, Rick, but I can't ever be close to you again. How would you feel? After an awkward pause, he replied, I guess I'd feel like God hadn't really forgotten, uh, forgiven me. But isn't that exactly the way you're forgiving Pam, I asked? Rick looked at the floor wrestling for an answer. In a softer voice, I continued, Imagine instead that God said, Rick, I forgive you. I promise never to think about your sin again, or to dwell on it or brood over it. I promise never to bring it up and use it against you. I promise not to talk to others about it. And I promise not to let this sin stand between us or hinder our relationship. After a long silence, tears began to fill Rick's eyes. I would know I was completely forgiven. But I wouldn't deserve that kind of forgiveness after the way I've treated Pam. Would you ever deserve it, I asked. God's forgiveness is a free gift purchased for you by Jesus' death on the cross. He doesn't forgive you because you earned it. He forgives you because he loves you. When you truly understand how precious and undeserved his forgiveness is, you will want to forgive Pam the same way he has forgiven you. I know I should but how could I ever keep that promise? I can't imagine forgetting what Pam did, and I just don't feel like I could ever be close to her again. Hold on, Rick. Where in the Bible does it say that forgiveness is forgetting, or that it depends on feelings? Forgiveness is a choice, a decision you make by God's grace in spite of your feelings. Of course, it's hard, especially in a case like this. But if you ask for God's help as you make those promises to Pam, he will give you the grace to follow through on them. We talked another 30 minutes about God's forgiveness. As Rick, as Rick reflected on how much God had forgiven him, he discovered a longing to do the same with Pam. We prayed together, and then I called Pam and asked her to join us in the office. When she came in, doubt and fear were written all over her face. As soon as she'd sat down, Rick began, Pam, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I've sinned so terribly against you. You asked me to forgive you, and I wouldn't give you real forgiveness. Instead, I've punished you with my bitterness and coldness. I've been so wrong. Would you please forgive me? 
Pam dissolved in tears. In between sobs, she poured out her own feelings of guilt and shame, along with her fear that Rick would never really forget what she had done. Reaching out to take her hand, Rick responded, I can understand your fear. I haven't handled this the way I should. I forgot how much God has forgiven me, but he has helped me today, and I want to forgive you the way he's forgiven me. With his help, I promise not to dwell on this anymore. I promise never to bring it up and to use it against you. I promise not to talk to others about it, and I promise not to let it stand between us. Rick wrapped his arms around Pam, and they cried together for several minutes. By offering her the redeeming forgiveness modeled by our Lord, Rick had brought life and hope back into their marriage. I want to give you a sort of a, an illustration of what forgiveness from the heart looks like in a real context. That's forgiveness from the heart, isn't it? One that cancels the debt and let the others go free. Forgiveness from the heart is a commitment not to dwell on it, not to bring it up or use it against the person, not to talk to others about it, not to let it stand between your relationship with them. And I don't know, maybe there's someone who needs to receive that forgiveness from your heart today or this week. I'll have a moment of silence and reflect whether there is any relationship that's out of order that you need to be willing to truly forgive. When we say, I forgive you, it can sound glib, can't it? And people don't really think we mean it. The other person can struggle to feel forgiven. But if someone asks for your forgiveness, why not spell out these commitments to them? I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to bring it up or use it against you. I'm not going to talk to others about it. I'm not going to let it stand in the way of our relationship. And if you spell it out to them, you are introducing them to the wonderful world of forgiveness. And it's an opportunity for you to glorify God. Explain to them you're forgiving them because God has forgiven you in this way. Share the good news of Jesus with them. Whether they're a Christian or non-Christian, share the good news of Jesus with them or explain how his love is the model for your forgiveness. Well, when we live like this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show in wonderful ways in our church family, isn't it? Let's seek God's grace and help.